This is the Accounting Insider Show. So this is another thing that a lot of investors are unaware of. There's got to be an easier way. It's achievable for anyone. It doesn't cost anything to set up a business. Because there are many great ideas out there, but it's the people that make ideas happen. Because once you unlock this formula, there's no reason to stop. You just get better and better at it. You just make so much money out of it. All right, we're sitting down today with Steve King. Steve, this podcast has got nothing to do with accounting at all. Uh, I actually really like that. Oh, but um, it's funny how all the funny little strings get drawn together in weird ways that we don't know about, Kim. We could go anywhere. I don't know. <laughs> but I am so excited about today's podcast. And I'm not just saying that, but you're a busy boy. I've been trying to organize this for about 12 months. But let me just paint the picture for the people listening. Uh, we were trying to line up a concert that I was going to. And let's start with the bleeding obvious. You're a viola player in the... Australian Chamber Orchestra. Was the Australian Chamber Orchestra. Now it's the Australian String Quartet. Okay. And recently I went to the Shostakovich concert at the Adelaide Town Hall. And I I just had an amazing night and saw you up on stage with three other players. And it was totally awesome. It was just an amazing experience. I think it went for about three hours and it seemed like three minutes. Um, I... You know, we know each other through cricket, ironically, but it, it's so incredible when you go to these sorts of events and you see someone that you think is just an ordinary person on stage with a spectacular performance and an amazing ability. So that's you. So let's just, I think that's enough waffle. Let's just go to <laughs> you growing up. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Canberra and... Um I lived there till I was in my. It's about twenty-one when I when I moved up to Brisbane. But I, I was an architecture student when I moved up to Brisbane because uh, I'd done three years. I got a bachelor of applied science in environmental design. A uh, bit of a mouthful. And um, then I moved up to Queensland and started uh, to to finish the last two years. I'd worked for a year as an architect. I'd done a beautiful car park. I'd done some internal drawings for bathrooms, and I actually did a whole toilet block in Goulburn. It was amazing. <laughs> and that that was my year as a, as being an architect. And I went up to Queensland and started studying up there. And six months in, I the dean of architecture, his wife taught viola. Would you believe it? Anyway, um, and she was a fantastic viola teacher. And I, I'd I'd always played violin. I kept playing violin when I was doing architecture just for fun. And also it, it earned me more money than my waitering did. So so it made sense. Now I was starting to think about the viola and then this lady taught viola and she was really inspiring. And in music we have this sort of, you know, master and apprentice approach to learning. And, um, and she was that master that was the right person at the right time, switched me on and I, I realised, you know, this could be a hell of a lot more fun than... than bathrooms and toilets and car parks and so um and it's a lot more immediate too you know you don't have to wait two years to see oh that wall should have been a little further out or something now that it's built it's too late uh you you know you make a mistake and you move on and and you learn from it um but you do it do it in a much shorter time and when you're that young you know you you're in a hurry you want to get everything done right now if not yesterday um so, so yeah, I, I just deferred for a year and then I kept studying and I ended up in America, but that's another story. Um, 
Uh, okay, so I've got to tie these two loose ends together, okay. f- please, because um, now you were, so obviously when you were growing up, you were having viola lessons or violin lessons on the side. Yep. And number one question is, did your parents make you um, practice or was that just something that you enjoyed and that, that just came naturally? No, I was really bad at practicing. I think that's why I was an architect to start with. Um, sorry, I'm not inspiring the young instrumentalists out there. No, no, no. I, I, actually, honest, I, I, I like it when you actually do tell the honest truth because <laughs> that's real. That's being normal. Yeah. Everyone has these battles. and I, So it sounds like you went through your um, career with your violin teacher and you, you were just an average student. Is that yeah. fair to say? Yeah, but, but I did have a natural talent. And I think that came from also starting quite young. Uh, as right. in I, I had rhythm inside me and I, and I could pitch things. Uh, I could sing. and um, so. But everyone can learn to sing. Just some people it, it's going to take a lot more effort um, to, to sure. figure it out. But um, so when I had an older sister. She went off to school. We'd, we'd been thick as thieves. She went to school. There was a lady not too far from us who, who taught violin. I was starting to get ratty at home and my parents thought, well, what can we do to keep him, keep him occupied and keep him out of our hair? And, um, and the violin became the thing. And so they started driving me to lessons. I used to love going into my dad's work and annoying all the people by going to play a little concert to them because it was encouraged to, to perform all the time. Both my parents are scientists. Both my sisters ended up being scientists. But anyway, I'm, I kind of slipped between the cracks there. Um, but is this what we're talking about Yeah, yeah, today? This, is spot, this is exactly right. This is you're spot on. Um, I don't want to interrupt because I've learned that when I do interrupt, you sort of lose your train of thought yeah. and the story gets sort of crumpled. Uh, okay, so w- at what point during that architectural, you know, did you take a year off from architecture and just study playing vi- viola yeah. at that point full time? And did you did you I, teach I her up I there? I didn't go full time straight off. I I, I, I deferred for a year, mm-hmm. thinking that I would probably go back. But I had to give this a go now while I was young, because you know I'd seen my friends go through, and and they, um, you know, after three years of full on training, they're they're pretty much streets ahead of where I was. So um, I felt like I needed to do a lot of catch up. So I just deferred the architecture for a year and gave it a shot. But I didn't want to totally leave design and architecture. So I, I actually I practiced in the mornings. I'd get up and go into the conservatorium from 7 to 12. And then I'd go and I worked in a cabinet maker's studio in the afternoon from, from 1 to 4 when they shut up. And I love timber. And I, yeah. I, I'm always trying to get into a shed whenever I can except... Um, it happens much more rarely now that there's three boys playing cricket all weekend. You know, there's a, yeah, yeah, but you know that story. But, but okay, so how did you go from someone who's doing it as a little part time thing to waking up one day and thinking, I'm going to actually turn this into a career? Yeah. Um, how did that break come? I think, I think it was when I started playing viola more seriously. And I had, my, it's funny, my old teacher who, in Canberra. My original teacher who taught me violin, she lent me a viola. It was by this guy called Arthur Smith, A.E. Smith, who's Australia's most famous um, instrument maker. And his violas in particular, but his violins also, are very sought after and uh, going up in value all the time. Uh, they're worth about uh, eighty to 100000 now. For an Australian maker, That's he's, he's definitely the record maker. Um, anyway... Um, she lent me one of his, but it was one that he'd had two strokes already when he made it. It was a bit of, you know, people would joke about it 
I think it was even people in his family, I think, said it was a bit of an axe carving, uh, so, which isn't terribly complimentary of, of an instrument maker. Um, but his son did it up. And anyway, I, I played that. It made a beautiful sound. And that sound really attracted me to it. Then there was the fact that all my friends were doing it and a lot of hot girls as well doing the music. And so that <laughs> makes it very attractive. And then um, having this great teacher, like the, the trifecta, a good instrument, um, friendships and teamwork. You know, it's all about teamwork when you're, when you're in a group. And particularly, like, I love the quartet. The quartet is what always I wanted to do as a viola player. Viola is not usually the melody instrument. It's, it's the instrument that gives a lot of rhythmic drive. It gives a lot of fills in the harmony and occasionally it gets a, a moment to shine and uh, and when it does you better make it good because you don't get many of them and uh, but I love that role I love that it's making the other people or the other it's it's creating the whole um, that's better than it would have been just without without all that stuff and it can help drive and help pull back and um, you know just make make the melody look good. So did your instructor from, or your teacher from Canberra actually loan that violin to you for a period of time? Were you actually using it when you were up in Brisbane? Yeah, so I got that when I was up in Brisbane. Did and, you, uh, it wasn't worth that amount of money no, when you no, got no. it? No, and back then, no, no, it wasn't worth close to that. And, and it was just on loan from her? Yeah, she just lent it to me, which was very kind of her. Well, oh, we had a good bond, you know. We'd we'd grown up together in yeah. a way, okay. and uh, yeah. And then, anyway, the the step after that um, was deferring for another year, and at which point I was I was also being a, a waiter in the evenings, and I was a waiter at the um, at the Lyrebird Cafe, which was at the Queensland Performing Arts Centre. Anyway, there was one night that this quartet came to town that I worshipped. They they're like gods of the American quartet scene, the Emerson Quartet. And and I said to the major D, I said, that's my table. I'm doing them. And so so that was fine. That was that was my table for the night. I, you know, waited on them all night, got chatting, 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 told them what I was doing, said I was interested, and they said, ah, oh, man, you gotta come come to Aspen. Aspen's where it at. Come for for nine weeks in the holidays, you know, you can come and uh and there's this lady, Heidi Castleman. Come to Heidi. I'll write to Heidi for you. I'll write and say you're sending a tape and she's got to expect this because you, you're just a number, you know. But if, you, if you're, you know, so, so they made it real. That all happened. Sent it, sent it off to her and it ended up um, at the Aspen Music Festival in Colorado in the Rocky Mountains. Fantastic. The hiking, the whitewater rafting, all that. But, but what you got was you got 900 students there for nine weeks incredibly huge heaps of orchestras um all the best soloists and conductors it's all the students from juilliard and the big american schools so suddenly i'm dropped in this um this this i don't know melting pot of great musicians and it was so so inspiring and uh and so i had my lessons with heidi and i was playing in a festival orchestra every week and um and then uh, just mentioned that I was keen to stay in America, perhaps. And so um, she lined up two people that were looking for viola students to start immediately in a master's program. And so because I had this Bachelor of Applied Science in Environmental Design, I could start into a master's program. So I, uh, I did that and um, 
I had a choice between Stony Brook, which is on Long Island in New York, or, mm. or Boston, and I ended up in Boston mainly because of the place rather than the teacher, but either teacher was fantastic. Um, went back the following year to, to, to that summer music festival, having done a year of masters, and was like, oh, I really want to meet a quartet. I was with uh, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, Kylie, and uh, we were out hiking one, one weekend out in the wilderness, out in the backcountry, and... Um, talking about dreams and all that and uh, I said well what I really want is a is a quartet that's already made that's looking for a viola player um, and so I get home and there's a message on the answering machine a string quartet heard that I was wanting to to um, play in a quartet they, they they were studying with the Emerson quartet the guys I was talking about um, did I want to come and have a play with them they were going to be in Aspen the next week so they came to Aspen I worked my butt off played with them we all liked each other and the music was good. So I went off and ditched the – so I, I, I ditched architecture. Now I ditched a master's course. My parents were going, what are you doing, son? And um, and anyway, but I joined them and uh, spent a year with the Emerson Quartet and then we stayed and we went to my other favourite American quartet, the Guarneri Quartet, who are like the grandfathers of the American Quartet. And studied with them for three years, and that's I, I got a doctorate degree. So now I'm Dr. Stephen King, a doctorate in chamber music, and that's my only music degree that I've managed to finish. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> then I came back and joined the ACO. <laughs> wow. Okay. Can we just talk about your instruments, please? Yeah. Like so. Oh, now, there's, an, there's another little story. Oh, is there? There. Okay. Please, this is good. Please, we'll please, talk please, about please, the instruments. There. Um, when when we got to the gig with the Guarneri Quartet. Um, there was a dentist in, in Connecticut who'd lent me – I still had my Smith that had mm. been lent to me by my original teacher, Igraine Loof, who's originally from Adelaide, actually. She, she grew up here. Anyway, um, I still had that Smith. This dentist had lent me this amazing Magini viola that was highly decorated, um, incredible instrument, sounded gorgeous. And uh, when – when we got this gig with the Guarneri Quartet, there were three other quartets and we all played a concert and we played our own bit. And in that concert, I played this Magini viola. And then the following day, we found out we got, we, we'd got the position. And, um, and the first day that I attended that university, I put my instrument into a locker and locked it and walked away. Came back, the lock had been cut <gasps> and the instrument had been stolen. I imagine whoever stole it felt targeted. Must have been they thought they were getting this Magini. They got my Smith. So this <sighs> instrument had been lent to me. Um, you know, disappeared. It's never been seen, never been found. We've looked, looked and looked, spent quite a while. I felt pretty bad for my poor old teacher. Um, anyway, so Michael Tree, who's the violist of the Guarneri Quartet, he then lent me one of his spare violas, which was actually a viola that, he used to have these violas made by this guy called Hiroshi Izuka, who's a Japanese maker who lives in Philadelphia. And he makes these, makes these violas with the cutaway shoulders, like the cutaway guitar, you know, so you can get up really high. Um, they're a great model. Um, it was years later, actually, that I was in the Stradivarius Museum in Cremona and I saw the exact template. So it wasn't actually even his design, but it's got the cutaway shoulders. So, you know, they were always messing around with trying to get the perfect shape and everything, but they kept coming back to this shape of the violin. And I'm talking about from the 1500s. They, they'd hit on this shape for violins 
cellos, violas, you know, double bass. They're all the same shape. They're just proportionately different. Um, and they haven't, they haven't found a better shape since. And like now there's engineers, all sorts of people trying to find a better shape for the violin or for the viola. Let's, let's just talk violas. And they, they've never done it. So that Japanese viola, yep. well, made by the Japanese guy in Philadelphia, that, that was your instrument that you were playing all of your, uh, all the time? That's what, that's what I then played all the time. And, yes. and what would it value-wise? Oh, when I bought it, I think I paid 16000 US for it. Oh, have you still got it? Yeah, yeah, I've lent it to a student now. Oh, what, wow. what goes around comes around, that's you incredible. know. <laughs> okay, well then how do we, we – we've got to tell the story about you being in London – and buying this amazing or cello, cello but right. yeah can we can we okay, talk so, about that so please? when i joined the australian string quartet which was after almost a decade with the australian chamber orchestra um touring with them then seven years ago i joined the australian string quartet moved here to adelaide um and the australian string quartet is in a very lucky situation that they've been lent while while we play in the group uh there are four guadagnini instruments now um, Giovanni Battista Guadagnini, Italian, of course, with a name like that, um, was making in the late 1700s, uh, from about 1740 through to 1786, I think was about his last instrument. Um, and we have four of those instruments. And because they're from the same maker and the same period, made with similar timbers, um, you know, pre-industrial revolution, all this kind of stuff, and because he's one of the greatest makers that there ever was, so you've got sort of the Stradivarius that most people know, uh, Guarneri, and, and then you're really Guadagnini sits right in there with those three big guys. And his instruments, they're just going nuts value-wise. I mean, I remember um, when Richard, uh, well, the Commonwealth Bank, paid 500000 for for um, for. Guadagnini instrument for Richard Tognetti to play in the ACO and, and that's now worth over two and two mil and that that's over a period of well maybe 20 years but still it's it's not not a bad return uh, probably better than the Sydney house prices I don't know anyway we're not talking finance we're, we're really lucky to have these instruments this they came about because this incredibly inspired and inspirational person, Ulrika Klein, who started the Jerlique, um skin products range up at Mount Barker with her husband, um, got involved with the quartet and she loves chamber music. She always has. She always wanted to, to play music, but her Lutheran minister father forbade her to make anything of it. You know, there was no dancing, no music, all that type of... Anyway, which probably spurred her on even more for her love of music. Anyway, she heard the quartet play, I think it was with Peter Whisperway, who also plays a Guadagnini cello. And she was like, wouldn't it be amazing if, if you all had instruments that could match the quality of his instrument? And the quartet nodded and were like, yeah, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? Yeah, lovely, lovely. And next thing they know, she was serious. And she went ahead and started buying them. And then, even in a more clever way, um, didn't just buy them personally, but put them into a trust so that they could carry on through the, through the generations like a gift to, the, to Australia, to Australian culture, to Australian players. And um, so that 
they'll be existing there to be loaned out to people um, for the foreseeable future and for their past. They've they've been loaned to the Australian String Quartet, which is absolutely fantastic. And they're a beautiful set of instruments. My my viola was made in Turin in 1780, 1783, and um, which is the end of his making period when. Uh, he was making instruments that were highly influenced by the Stradivarius models, um, which are flatter and have a bit more power, and uh, they project to the back of a hall, and with halls getting bigger and bigger. I mean, chamber music used to be played in small chambers. Tell me if I'm talking too much. No, 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 no. It used to be Carry played on. in small chambers. Um, and then as economics got into it, and and popularity it started being played in bigger and bigger halls you sell more tickets to more people um but of course you've got these instruments that weren't necessarily designed for that in the day there was this guy called steiner making in austria and his instruments i think i might have been talking to you one day about this um they were much higher arched in the belly and they made a beautiful sound when they're young but as they got older, the belly would sink, the wood would collapse a bit because, you know, these, these are very thin pieces of wood. We're talking about probably two to three to four mil that vary over the plate. And if, I mean, obviously a cello, it's thicker. Um, but it's quite precise carving. And, uh, and as the wood gets older and it loses more moisture and, and it becomes a bit more brittle and everything and, uh, and lighter, it seems to... Uh, uh, and and also there's there's something that happens with the uh, the varnish and the way that reacts with the wood and and the sort of shell that that creates for the instrument and um, oh there's all sorts of changes that go on over time nobody's really come down to to why these old instruments are so good and why why they are better than something that can be made today. Um, really, it's just time that does it, and it's interesting. I was sorry, I'm starting to waffle and wonder, but I was talking to this bow maker in Cremona. I play on his bows. He when when he gets a stick of timber, which is getting harder and harder to get, they're made of Pernambuco wood, which only comes out of the Brazilian rainforests, and Brazil has now said we're not going to allow this to be exported anymore. So it's locked up. So there's now a lot of bow makers in Brazil. But there's also uh, uh, there's there's black market for this stuff now. Uh, people sneak it out of the country. And uh, anyway, this bow maker was telling me about the preparation of that wood before he even thinks of making it into a bow. And he, he has all these special racks where he takes it into the sun and at all the right times of the year and the right times of the day, he places it in the sun, he turns it different times. It's like making champagne, how they turn the turn the bottle a quarter turn every or is it an eighth of a turn anyway just a little bit like to to make the sediment but this is the the drying process and it takes years he dries these sticks before he'll even dream of coming near it with a, a carving knife um but there's all these things about aging and aging the timber correctly and and he was telling me that his bows when they come out they might work better than an old bow, but they're never going to give that sound of a new bow. And this is just the bow. So, so of course, you've got the instrument, you've got the bow. The bow is like your breath. The instrument is like, I don't know, your voice box, I guess. And um, you've got to have a combination of the two that work together so that you make the best sound that you can. Back to London. London. <laughs> that was the question, wasn't it? I knew, I knew I, was, I was getting back to that. So... 
just before I joined the quartet, um, there was this, uh, I got a call from Ulrika and they'd already found two violins and a viola. And this was for the Australian String Quartet to play on. And they were, so this was um, a group of four ladies. And, and so they had three instruments already. And she said, oh, by the way, I know you're in London um, playing some concerts. I was wondering if you could go to Beers, which um, Arthur Beers is this, this shop. Arthur Beers is the name of man, obviously, but he has a shop in London, uh, which is in an old terrace just behind Wigmore Hall. And Wigmore Hall is one of the like hallowed grounds of chamber music. It's this beautiful hall in London where everybody who's anybody plays recitals, a bit like um, Carnegie Hall in uh, in in America, where everyone wants to have played a recital. Anyway, um, there's there's this terrace house and uh, about three or four levels. And on every level, there's there's rooms where you can try these instruments. It's all timber-lined and beautiful, you can imagine. And they, they hang up instruments on pegs in all these cabinets and sometimes just out in the open. And they also have cases and cases of bows to try. And in the basement, they, they have uh, luthiers who are making instruments and repairing instruments and repairing bows. And um, anyway, so... I went in there and I took the cello section from from ACO, so the, the three of them, and uh, and we had a bit of a field day in this candy shop playing about, oh, I say it was about eight fantastic old cellos, all very different. Three of them were Guadagnini's. One of them we discounted straight away. Um, two of them were really nice, but there was one that just stood out. And they all said, you know, it's a smaller instrument. And it's interesting, at the begin, it's, it's from when Guadagnini lived in Piacenza. He was a young man. It was the beginning of his career. And he was making a model similar to, similar to what Stradivari had made at one point, which was a smaller cello. And these smaller cellos, some, for some reason, do still sound big and they have a glorious sound, but you've got to get used to the the uh, the shorter stop, uh, meaning your fingers would need to be slightly closer together to play in tune, rather than spread out. As you can imagine, the longer the string gets, the bigger the spacing in the fingers. And anyway, so that was the only. If there was a question, it's like, well, you'd have to get used to playing this instrument. It's gorgeous, but it's a little bit smaller than your average cello. Um, but we all loved it. And and so I, I called Ulrika and said, well, look, there's this fantastic one, and it's actually in mint condition. It's the people, all, all the um, people that we've shown it to since, they just rave about the quality of the varnish and how it's never been touched up or changed. So it's original from... You know, seventeen. I think that one's seventeen forty something. I can't remember, but that's that's one of his very early cellos. Absolutely gorgeous instrument. And she said, "Buy another seat on the plane and bring the cello home." And did you have to um, talk price, or do you remember the asking price? Uh, I know I don't remember the exact price, but I think the the cost of getting the whole group together was about six million. That's the four instruments. But but let me tell you, they've appreciated, um, you know, another 40% on that already. 
really. Yeah, basically. Okay. Maybe forty's gone too far. But, All right. uh, but anyway, the thing is, there are there are limited supply and a diminishing. You know, there's, it's it's the right. If you want to look at it financially, they're a good investment. I can imagine they are, and they. You've explained this to me that they actually get better with use over time. Yeah, well, there are a lot of these instruments that are sitting in museums, um, and that's okay. Some people like to look at them, but you know they're about the sound. And the funny thing is that when you when you leave it and don't play it, it actually closes up the sound of the sound. Like it can take months and months of of a lot of serious playing, hours and hours a day, to bring back the sound, and. Um, They've done uh, they've done all sorts of scans. I won't say MRIs or anything. I don't know if they've done that. But anyway, and they've seen that actually the grain of the timber. I mean, timber is an organic living thing, and even when it's been ch- chopped down, it still has that organic nature. The grain actually sympathizes with the patterns in the instrument of the resonance, of how it wants to resonate, and the grain moves slightly. And so the more you play it and the more you excite that and get the resonance of the instrument wanting to happen, you're actually altering the fabric of the timber and, and, and it actually, you know, it wants to sing. It's incredible, but it needs to be out from behind that glass and in the hands of a player who's going to try and play it in tune so that it will actually ring and enjoy its life. Um, you mentioned before that the Industrial Revolution... Mm. So can you just elaborate on why that destroyed this? Oh, there's just theories out there that um, that once that layer of soot blew across um, Europe and got into these forests, that that just changed um, the quality of the timber that, that it's picking up different, um, d- different qualities and characteristics and you can actually see in in the rings of, of trees that were cut down around that time you can see when there's this dark patch in the rings that that happened you know around that time when all suddenly all that coal's being burnt and all the the factories and everything so yeah people talk about wood pre that and wood after that okay your viola was that actually bought from that same shop in london the viola is the only instrument that wasn't bought from that shop. They're all bought from that shop because um, you've got to have it has street cred. You know, you've got you you want to be. Abs- there are a lot of fakes out there. So I mean, there are so many instruments that have Stradivarius in the label, and you so you need an expert to say this actually is a Stradivarius. And they're able to do that. Yeah. yeah. So where, where did yours come from? What shop? Well, mine. Mine came from a tip-off from that shop to Ulrika. They tipped her off and said, look, I mean, there's only 12 of these violas out there. So there was one available. She was haggling a little bit on the price, I think, or she was, it, it was, she was new at this. She hadn't, she hadn't bought one before. You know, she wasn't going to dive straight in and say, okay, I'll pay whatever it is. So, and so there was this hesitancy and this... Swiss bank bought it and gave it straight to somebody and that, that was that was the end. It was gone. It was like, well, if there's only 12, you know, if one comes up again, I'm going to pounce on it. And she did. Uh, she got told about this. It wasn't going through their shop. They didn't want it to go through the shop because, of course, they charge a huge commission and all that. So, but... Oh, the vendor didn't want it to go through the shop. 
Yeah, because they wanted to. They didn't want to pay the commission to the shop. Mm. Would it be um, something like thirty percent? Yeah, I, I don't know. Okay, I don't know. Tell us the story, yeah. please. I'm getting excited about that. Anyway, so so she bought this one straight from the vendor, having had it checked by several different people for their opinions and everything. Because you know you've got to have the real deal. It's like you don't want a fake Monet hanging in your lounge room, thinking that it's the you know. Not everybody would know, but who, who, the thing who, is, it's who was the vendor? Uh, well, you see, this is weird. They don't go into. They don't like to give any of this away. It's like buying a house. Often you don't know who you bought the house from. Years later, you can kind of stitch things together and figure out who it was. What country are we talking? Oh, it was in England. Okay. However, um, and maybe this is one of the reasons why um, when we when we looked into trying to find out its provenance, where it's been, and what it's done, um, has all this Russian writing inside it, and there. Um, we got one of those, um, not an arthroscope. What? It's one of those. A uh, little camera little on a camera wire. On a on a wire with a, with a light. That you can yeah with a light. And so we. Uh, this was when Scott Hicks was doing a documentary about the um, why you would buy these instruments. What what is it that makes you so passionate about buying these and the music and um, and all of that. Anyway, so we we looked inside and there's all this Russian written where there were these little repairs because these instruments crack. They change, they crack, they need to be repaired. Um, they'll put a little a bow tie repair or they'll they'll put a little extra patch under the sound post so that it doesn't crack under. The, oh, the sound post is a, a little stick. It's really important for the sound. It goes between the spruce and the maple. Maple on the back, nice and solid. Spruce on the top, nice and springy. Uh, that's the standard construction for an instrument. And the bridge, which is, uh, you know, has the strings on it. The bridge transfers the vibrations from the strings through to the top. And then there's the sound post, which is inside the instrument between the top and the bottom. Uh, so, yeah, the sound post often cracks there because there's so much pressure, obviously. Um, anyway, where were we? We were, um, we were talking about the story and how you didn't know exactly where it came from. Yeah, and there was all this. Oh, and, and looking inside with the so, Russian writing. And it, that was all in the 50s and 60s, so post-war. Um, so, you know, it could have been part of the spoils of war or something uh, ended up in Russia. Anyway, it was in one of the Russian orchestras and then it ended up in England and then Ulrika ended up buying it. Um, wow, and so, so it's it's a bit of a mystery as to its origin and the the previous yeah. vendor. I mean, th- it's funny. Be- there there are some instruments that become very famous about who owned them, mm. or you know, they'll they'll be called the Heifetz of this or the something. You know, they'll the Isai that some of the famous um, players, string players over the time, or um, the cello that that we bought actually didn't have a name, and at this stage, um, Ulrika's. Um, property and company was still called Naringa um, and they, they still have uh, her son uh, runs Naringa Wines that's his business uh, but Ulrika um, her company is now um, Ukaria or Ukaria Ukaria and uh, that's a cultural foundation and there's this beautiful concert hall up in the hills at Mount Barker uh, seats 220 people and looks out over Mount Barker itself in the bush. Uh, it sounds incredible. It looks beautiful and it's it's um, a, a warm, embracing hall. It's gorgeous for, for chamber music. She's built that as well. Uh, incredibly passionate about music. They have a beautiful series up there. Everyone listening from Chicago to um, 
everywhere the people that listen to your podcast should come to Adelaide for what that's one of the reasons they should come as well as the food and the wine and the coffee and the people and everything else mm. yes mm. Uh, okay can you just tell us a story about when you actually snapped the neck off of it oh <laughs> yeah like I said these things crack sometimes <laughs> this was um, perhaps not a particularly good example of that yeah we were playing a concert in Albany Western Australia and they've got some great music programs down there. And uh, so we'd been spending a week there and um, and we'd been working with students and preparing this concert. And then we played a concert as well at the end of the week. And during that concert, there was this um, piece that was actually called Naringa, uh, which brings me back to the – sorry, I didn't finish that story. The cello is now called Naringa. What does um, Naringa mean? Um, oh, that's a good question. Okay, maybe. I think it means – uh, silky oak or she oak okay. in Aboriginal in the Aboriginal dialect from up there because there were a lot of silky oaks on the site and so that's why uh, it was called that. Um, back to Albany and the breaking. Back to Albany and the breaking. So um, was playing away this piece called Naringa as well because Ulrika had commissioned this piece by Matthew Heinsen who's a really good um, young Australian composer. Um, wrote a lot in the 90s, um, sort of in a, you know, was really influenced by rock and roll in his classical music. And um, anyway, so there's a bit of rock and roll in this piece too still, even though it was written 20 years later. He's a diehard rocker, let's say. And um, there was, I, I guess it just, there was a bit, I, I must admit I was working hard. We all work hard, you know. We play these instruments hard. They, I, I think they appreciate it. <laughs> And um, they're incredibly versatile. They, 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 I, I can't imagine in the day that they were made that they'd imagine that they'd be playing something that's a bit more like rock music and a bit less like Baroque music. But um, anyway, uh, I was playing away and suddenly the instrument just went limp in my hands and, it, and there was this little like crack and the neck had actually broken off from... The body of the instrument and the fingerboard had slapped down on the on the top, and so the strings were all slack and and nothing could happen. So I had to stop and um, you know the old line of is there a doctor in the house? Is there a viola in the house? Came out and um, there actually was a viola in the house. So I got to um, I just it was one of the students who was there and they had their viola case next to them. So I just borrowed the student's viola to uh, to finish off the concert, which was kind of fun. But um, the thing is, also, it there was a guy um, who's also in that movie by Scott Hicks, um, who was visiting Australia at the time and was going back to Cremona two days later, and and that was the two days later when I arrived at Adelaide Airport. He was flying out from Adelaide Airport to to go back to Cremona, so he took that straight back to Cremona, and uh, and it got fixed in Cremona. But it turned out that when the Russians had the instrument. Um, that they hadn't set, set the neck properly. They changed the angle of the net, neck. As, as these instruments have changed and we've got steel strings on them, synthetic strings and all that kind of stuff, um, the bridges have become higher and the angle of the neck has become steeper. Uh, they used to be much flatter instruments. Um, but this gives them more power and more ability to play to the back of a hall, which is what we need to do now. Um, but actually at the Australian String Quartet, we're trying to bring it back into smaller venues because that's 
where we think music is best suited, our, our, our style of music. Sure, orchestral music, you need a big hall. But, um, yeah, this is more intimate and more personal. Anyway, going back going back to where was I? <laughs> um, what were we talking about when we sent the, the um, instrument back? Sent the back? instrument back. But, um, yeah, so, and turned out that when the neck had been reset, that instead of adding some timber to it to, to tilt the angle, they'd just shaved off some of the block that, that supports the neck and it was just hanging on by a thread. So, you know, it was just sort of patched together. So uh, luckily the guys in Cremona got in there, they put a real block at the back of the neck and it, and it, it, it shouldn't have broken during a concert. Um, it wasn't your fault. No, I got absolved of that one, That's luckily. Good. When you train at the Adelaide Town Hall, you ride your bike in with this really expensive instrument strapped to your back. Uh-huh. Everyone's fine with that? I don't know. How much am I worth? <laughs> That's right. That's right. No, I, well, I just... no, I mean, yes, okay. Look at it seriously. There, there were some questions, and obviously when I was given – I'd always ridden with an instrument on my back. In Europe, they ride their bikes everywhere, and they all mm. have instruments on their backs and or wherever in their little basket at the front. And um, but maybe they they ride a little more sedately, perhaps in Europe on the their bike paths. They you just don't want to be a pedestrian on it, or you'll find out very quickly that it's the wrong place to be. Anyway, um, yes, I do that, and um, yeah, I, I think I'm very grateful that the that the, that the um because it's not just Ulrika, it's there's there's also a board involved and everything. That, that they allow me to ride my bike with it because I love riding my bike to work. You know, I live so close. It's just through the parklands. I'm not on the streets very often. I try not to ride with the instrument on the street unless I have to. Uh, so, so yeah, I wouldn't have done it in Sydney. But Absolutely. here in Adelaide, I'm, I'm very happy to, to ride with it on my back. And, and, you know, if I fell, I'd be definitely doing my utmost not to be falling on my back. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Now, um, we, we've touched on this before, but are you? We we we've talked about whether um, anyone out in the audience wants to get behind the Australian String Quartet. Um, is that something that um, we can explain to the people how they can get involved, or what would be you know your ideal way of someone who wants to get involved or support your um, music? How do they plug in? How do they contact you? What can they do to assist? Oh, well, yeah, well, you know, there's... Firstly, we just want to get people along to concerts. Mm. And uh, and if people love what they hear at concerts, uh, then, you know, there's so many ways that, that, that people help us to, to do what we do. And we're getting music out into the regions. We're getting music to schools, uh, which is absolutely vital. And we're... You know, trying to to continue this Australian culture. I love that Australian culture is so much about sport and all of that. And having three boys doing it all the time, you know, it's it keeps them away from those computers and everything and keeps them... That's fantastic. But uh, they also all play music and... Uh, and, you know, I mean, there's been so many studies done of, of how much this helps your brain development and how much, um, how good it is. It's, it's another form of teamwork, playing music with other people. I mean, 
there's there's sport where you're swimming and following a black line along the ground and perhaps if you're a pianist or something it's a similar type of individual pursuit where um you spend a lot of time alone in a practice room but but music really is about making it with other people um as far as um ways that people help we have a board of course uh we have a lot of private uh individual philanthropists people who want to donate to to this organization because they love the music it makes and they love what it does for the country um Paul Clitheroe was on our board he was the chair of our board for for some time when I joined until about uh I'd say it's four years ago now um but uh and he used to call it his pro bono board because he was on heaps of boards but this one was his you know this was him giving back to society doing something with um what he'd built over over his time um and you so, know where there, there's there's got to be other Ulrika clients out there mm-hmm. who are interested in instruments and and then I I mentioned earlier about the bows as well you know these bows you can you can pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for a stick it only costs $150 to get a new bit of horsehair on it but the to be the the bow itself uh the older ones are picart or a tort or a tubs or a dod or in, any of these older bows the the prices are pretty insane and it's again because um there's not so many of them around anymore and so they and they do make a, a special different sound there's the other thing about these old instruments that i didn't talk about was how they have their way of doing things if you pick up a modern instrument a new one you know you can just put your bow on the string and pull and it'll make a good sound okay that's good but these old instruments you pick it up you need to find out what it is that makes it click what it is that makes it want to sing what it is you know it's like jumping into a really old Austin Martin or something that uh you got to learn the gearbox you got to know how it wants to take the corners you got to find out all these things about it that um aren't immediate you know you jump into a Hyundai and it's pretty straightforward it's that kind of comparison if you like and uh yeah so that's why we do bother with these old things and also i think i mentioned the monet there there's something about the art in them the craft in them and uh they're just incredible pieces that we're very lucky to play on all right well time to um wrap things up but thank you ever so much Steve for being part of this podcast it's just an amazing story i've just been mesmerized listening to it it's just <laughs> yeah sorry i didn't let you talk much did i, I just <laughs> no, kept going it was really we, good we haven't done stuff. 50 minutes have we 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 have we You're just kidding. get 46 that's amazing but uh, I guess if people want to get in touch, they go to the Australian String Quartet website, and they can asq.com.au, and they can send an email. There'll be links on the on the website. So thanks ever so much, Steve. Pleasure. Thanks, Kim. <laughs>